Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. In this week's episode, I'm going to dig deep into the history of the rules of rugby to look at where the rules of rugby league come from. Although today we think of league rules as having little in common with union rules, the only similarity, so the saying goes, is the shape of the ball and the posts, the roots of rugby league can be traced back to the discussions about rugby rules that took place long before the game split into two. In fact, just as much as rugby union, rugby league rules evolved from the game played by all rugby clubs before the creation of the Northern Union in 1895. Union rules are the road rejected by the Northern Rugby Clubs that created rugby league, while league rules are the road not travelled by rugby union. Both are variations of rugby as it was played in the 1870s, 80s and 90s. The original rules of rugby look nothing like modern rugby union or rugby league. As any reader of Tom Brown's school days, Thomas Hughes' classic 1857 novel about rugby school, would know, the scrum was the most important feature of early rugby. Teams were 20 a side, made up usually of two fullbacks, two halfbacks, one three-quarter and 15 forwards. The scrum was the focal point of the game. RFU secretary Arthur Guillemard described how the scrum worked in 1877. As soon as the ball carrying play was brought to the ground with a tackle, he stood up while both sets of forwards gathered around him and, directly the holder of the ball has succeeded in forcing it down to the ground, he shouts down and the business of the scrum may be commenced at once. The aim of the scrum was not to heal the ball out, but to drive the ball forward and break up the opposing pack. So scrums would often last for minutes while both packs tried to force their opponents back. Passing the ball was extremely rare. And as you might imagine, this was not a game for spectators. And by 1875, reforms were being demanded. As the sporting weekly Bell's Life asked, how much longer are we to be wearied by monotonous shoving matches? To lift the game out of the mire in which it found itself, often quite literally in the winter, in 1876, the RFU decided that international matches would be played 15-a-side and rugby at all levels quickly became a 15-a-side game. This marked the start of almost two decades of radical reform. 15-a-side meant fewer forwards and smaller scrums that no longer lasted for minutes because it was easier for the ball to come out of the scrum. Most importantly, teams now began to heal the ball deliberately out of the scrum. 15-a-side also opened the way for the development of the passing game. The speed with which the ball left the scrum now offered a quick-thinking halfback the chance to move the ball quickly out to his three-quarters or loose forwards. In 1878, the RFU further decided that a tackle player had to let go of the ball immediately when he was tackled. This meant that the forwards now had to keep up with play, expanding the available space on the field and creating more opportunities for the backs. Innovation quickly followed in those areas where rugby had become a mass spectator sport. In South Wales, Cardiff introduced the 4-3 quarter system in the mid-1880s and in the north of England, the huge popularity of the Yorkshire Cup tournament propelled the game forward to new levels of sophistication. When a team from the mining village of Thorns near Wakefield won the Yorkshire Cup in 1882, they did it using a wing forward to protect their scrum half and allocated specialist positions to forwards in the scrum and the line-out anticipating the 1905 All Blacks innovations by a generation. Originally in rugby, only goals counted in the score. A try was precisely that. It allowed the scorer to try and kick a goal. But a try on its own scored no points. However, the increasing importance and spectator appeal of try scoring led the RFU in 1886 to award points for tries and goals. A goal was now worth three points and a try one point. 
1889, this situation was worsened, however, when penalty goals were awarded two points, further undermining the value of a try. But for most spectators, especially in Northern England and South Wales, the passing game and the scoring of tries were the essence of rugby, as a Yorkshire rugby journalist argued. A try in the vast majority of instances is the most deserving point in the game and calls for the greatest exertion on the part of the team as a whole. On the other hand, the responsibility of placing a goal is an individual responsibility. The huge growth of soccer in the 1880s also meant that rugby had to compete as a spectacle by promoting tries over goals and reducing the number of scrums and lineouts. In 1892, three years before the 1895 split, James Miller of the Yorkshire Rugby Union praised rugby's move to 15 aside in the previous generation, but argued that times had changed. The game had now reached a period when another radical change must be considered, and that was the reduction of players from 15 to 13. So even before the creation of the Northern Union in 1895, an alternative roadmap for the future of rugby was being laid out. Not surprisingly, therefore, a fortnight after the famous meeting at the George Hotel that created the Northern Union, Halifax and Leeds proposed moving to a 13-a-side game. Leeds committee member Harry Sewell argued, We want to do with that scrummaging, pushing and thrusting game, which is not rugby, and that is why I propose to abolish the line-out and reduce the number of forwards to six. The rugby public does not pay to see a lot of scrummaging. In December 1895, Halifax's Joe Nicholl supported him and proposed that the rugby game of football as played by the Northern Rugby Football Union should be played by 13 players on each side and to consist of six forwards, two half-backs, four three-quarters and one full-back. His motion was lost by 18 votes to nine and the Northern Union continued to be a 15-a-side game. With hindsight... It's failure to grasp the nettle cost the Northern Union dearly over the next decade. At the end of its first season, there were worries about the lack of tries scored. So, in 1897, the value of all goals was reduced to two points, one point less than the try, placing the emphasis firmly on the importance of scoring tries. The line-out was also abolished in 1897 because, as one Northern Union supporter explained, it's an unattractive incident followed by a scrummage and a piece of play which is undesirable in a scientific and sportsmanlike sense. In 1899, the Northern Union decided to get rid of the traditional rugby union rook or maul after a tackle by introducing a rule that when a tackle player could not release the ball, a scrum had to be formed. But although this tidied up the messiness of the tackle, it hugely increased the number of scrums. For example, in 1902... Hunslet versus Halifax saw 110 scrums being formed. You can see how this system worked on the Mitchell and Kenyon rugby films from 1901 on YouTube. Many of the Northern Union thought the answer was to reduce the number of forwards. In 1903, the issue came up for debate again and the clubs voted 54-24 to 24 to make the Northern Union game a 12-a-side game but the motion failed by just five votes to get the three-quarter majority it needed to go into the rulebook. Even so, by the beginning of the 1904-05 season, virtually every non-professional Northern Union competition played under 12-a-side rules. But this left the Northern Union in limbo. Eventually, the issue came up again at the 1906 annual general meeting. Bradford argued to go back to the rugby union rules. Whitehaven Recreation wanted to move to 12-a-side, St Helens suggested 14 aside, and Warrington and Lee proposed 13 aside. 
After a decade of indecision, 13 aside was adopted by 43 votes to 18. And to solve the problem of endless scrummaging, the meeting also voted to introduce a new rule about the tackle. Now, instead of a scrum being formed, the tackle player was allowed to get to his feet, put the ball down in front of him and play it with his foot, usually to a teammate standing behind. This was motivated as being a version of the original rugby union rule, which stated that the tackle player had to stand up and put the ball down in front of him to start the scrum. The play the ball had been born by taking a half step back to the rugby rules of 30 years before. This adoption of 13 aside and the play of the ball marked the final break with the RFU's conception of how rugby should be played. The impact of the Northern Union Revolution became obvious as soon as the 1906-07 season started. Over 800 points were scored in the first two weeks of the season, far and away a record, and an athletic news headline was able to proclaim boldly, the new rules completely vindicated. Three decades of debate had finally led to the principles of modern rugby league emerging, and the underlying philosophy of the game, which still remains at its heart today, was neatly expressed by Hull FC chairman Charles Simpson. The essence of our existence is a game without monotony. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. And if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at my Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com. Next week, we'll be looking at the life and achievements of Albert Baskerville, the man who started International Rugby League. Until then, thanks for listening.